0: You're listening to the best possible taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by the Taste.ie, voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine.
1: Good evening and welcome to a special second helpings of Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And
2: I'm Hannah Noonan.
1: Yes, tonight I'm joined by a very special seven-year-old co-presenter because we're sharing our three favourite interviews from 2018. We're starting off with a trip to Harrods to meet Cavan native and Dunn, head of product development of the world's most famous department store. Then it's a trip to Food and the Age in October when I met Diana Henry to hear about her latest book How to Eat a Peach and then we're on a Ferris wheel in County Wexford to talk to Natalie and Karen about their delicious bean and goose chocolate. But before all of that here's how to get in touch with me at the best possible taste you can email s.noonan at live.ie or tweet at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation and I'm on Instagram at Sharon J. Noonan Now Hannah you've heard of Harrods haven't you?
3: Yes
2: it's in the movie Peace or Rabbit.
1: Because it has a fantastic fantastic toy department, but it also has an amazing food department. Let's have a listen.
0: Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up.
1: Delicious. Mm. Mmm. Thanks a million for having me here today at Harrods. You have a brand new food hall, which is just amazing. Will you tell me, just to start off, what is the history and the background of the food hall at Harrods?
4: Well, we've been a pioneer in food retail since 1834. Um, Many people don't even know that Harrods actually started out as a tea merchant, so almost 180 years ago. Um, and throughout that time, I suppose food has really remained at the heart of Harrods, and indeed some people would say that food is the heartbeat of Harrods. From a food hall perspective, I guess there's been no real significant investment since the sort of early 1980s. And we know that um, luxury tra- trends are sort of you know increasingly been driven by the demand for destination sort of retail experience. So, Harrods has embarked on a three year project um, named Redefining Luxury 2021, which these Harrods take an investment of 200 million into the store here at Harrods. And really, de- redesigning the store around the shopping requirements. Um, of discerning modern luxury customers and as part of this investment uh, the food halls um, have very much played a part of that Uh, and just over 12 months ago um, our sort of one year anniversary we reopened one of the first food halls our roastery and bake hall I guess the clue is in the name but the, roast, the roastery being that we now roast all of our coffee uh, that we use on site um, within um, a dedicated uh, roastery um, and it's all roasted by our master um, roaster. And then we also have a live bakery which produces bread including sourdough every single day.
1: And that bread can be personalised, I saw, whenever it I was there. It can
4: indeed, yes. And I suppose one of the things that we've tried to do in every single category is really push the boundaries and make sure that we are delivering both experience but also that personalised experience for our customers. So yes, you can have your initials personalised on it. You can have anything you wish personalised on it. And then also earlier this year, Sharon, reopened the Wines and Spirits Room um, on the lower ground floor where for the first time customers can actually see, they can smell, they can touch and they can taste products as they purchase. So really creating magic like no other Wines and Spirits retail offer. And then most recently, so just um, four weeks ago, we um, reopened um, what's now called our Fresh Market Hall, which I guess is the most energetic and bustling um, of the food um, halls uh, customers can find the finest speciality fresh foods from all around the world and it gets to, to really um, suit the entire spectrum of uh, foodies. So from those who want um, sort of loose fresh produce to sort of um, cook from scratch right through to somebody who just wants to take home um, a pre-prepared meal produced actually daily by our Harrod Chefs. So it's really
1: interesting when you visit because there are all these different areas dedicated to different food stuff. So whenever it came to the design elements for the the refurbishment,
4: what were the key elements? First and foremost, it was about reinstating the beauty of the original food halls, and um, and having you know taken you round the food halls, you can see that the beautiful tiling um, that you know uh, was once hidden by. Uh, lots of uh, different fixtures has now been brought back um, to life. Um, our food is um, protected by the Engli- by English Heritage as well, so it was really important that we worked with them to ensure that we reinstated that that the original um, beauty um, and and kept it sort of um, protected. So that that's really the first um, first thing. Second thing is about sort of experience and that real personalisation. Um, it really had to stimulate all the senses um, of customers um, so that you know, they went away feeling like it was truly memorable. Um, we know that we have visitors from all around the world. They seek out that mag- magical retail experience so really retaining that in the design of the room was really important. The other thing was just making sure that we're providing ultimate convenience and ultimate convenience is making sure that the journey through the rooms is seamless. So really simple things like, you know, we installed um, self scan, which you may think might jar with a luxury retailer, but in actual fact, it's really important to our customers in a high traffic environment and a high volume environment that they can come in and um, get out as quickly as possible. The other thing was really celebrating expertise um, so I've touched base on our master baker and our master roaster but we also have a brigade of 150 chefs under our roof that are producing fresh products every single day and it was really important that we allowed them to become centre stage off the room.
1: So, in a project of this nature, there's obviously a lot of different people involved. So, from designers to trades such as carpenters, your lighting to look at, and then of course the suppliers. So, how important is collaboration in bringing to life such an impressive environment?
4: I would say that collaboration is everything. This was a hugely ambitious project, and we're on you know an amazing journey. Um, but like anything, um, you know, we've got a very short window to deliver this. So collaboration amongst a multitude of different departments um, was a must in order for us to be able to deliver this. Internally we have an incredible team um, they've worked you know, and, and continue to work tirelessly um, on delivering world class um, standards. There's been times where it's been challenging, and you've touched on some of the departments, like lighting, for instance. And um, it was really important that we worked with the lighting team to ensure that the beauty of the products was retained, and that it didn't sort of give across any sort of artificial um, sense, but that it just simply enhanced the beauty of them equally we had to work with visual merchandising to ensure that the beautiful products that you know we had developed as part of the innovation team were merchandised in a way that made it easy for the customers to shop as opposed to merchandised in a beautiful way that people will just look at but will be scared to, to buy we um worked you know we've got a, an amazing brigade of chefs as i've said um but some of the chefs had never worked in retail before and are used to very much single plating uh, a dish um, but in a retail environment, to retain that freshness, um, but also in a scalable fashion, it does take quite a lot of working uh, through together to deliver that same consistency and quality. We had to work really closely with the buying team in terms of sourcing the best ingredients from all around the world, and indeed, you know, trying to find the best suppliers that, uh, you know, at times, certainly in the past, we wouldn't have necessarily ha- had. Um, so that, that was you know, complete and utter collaboration. There's also um, on the immediate front now, trading it daily, uh, the retail team. So ensuring that they have been um, given the right tools to you know, sell um, all of these amazing products to our customers. Um, but being trained properly so that they can um, passionately tell the customers the stories about where the products come from how they've been made what they taste like so endless amounts of training has gone into that so yeah collaboration was key and there's been um, uh, many many departments involved in this project
1: you talk a lot about your customers and your customers needs so it's clear that the food offering is, here at Harrods is very very important and I think Outside of London, a lot of people think Harrods hey, is it's a tourist attraction, mm-hmm. but it's actually very much a consumer-driven dri- operation as well. Like you have a lot of regular people that come in to do their food to shop.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. No, you're 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 right there, Sharon. Um, the food scene today in London and indeed around the globe is is very dynamic and it's you know constantly changing, which is one of the really exciting things about working in food. Um and I suppose ultimately the food halls, we want to offer inspiring solutions to make customers' lives easier alongside the sort of finest and rarest and most unique speciality foods from around the world, carefully created by you know us, the experts. and whether you're sort of you know um catering for a special event that you have coming up or you're just simply coming in to buy you know a Monday evening dinner. Um, you know, our our offering provides all of those, or you're simply just coming, as you mentioned, you know, to Harrods for that one magical time um, when you're in London, um, you know, and you would just want to pick up something nice to sort of remember that experience by whether it be the personalized loaf of bread or be it a beautiful tin um, of tea you know that's been made by our tea tailor and we've sort of got the spectrum to of products to suit everybody's needs.
1: It is amazing when you walk around and you see all the different products from all parts of the world and you told me as well about your your colleagues that are experts in that field.
4: So yeah Bernadette is our um, cheese and our charcuterie expert. Um, she is um, probably the most educated in both of those categories um, that you know I've ever met. She's phenomenal at what she does, um, but she is lucky, lucky enough to work with some incredible partners. Um, and by building up relationships with them, she um, now gets to, to select the legs of Ham. Uh, I think she's the only buyer in the world that gets to do this. Um, in retail and she gets uh, a preview of the legs which are then numbered for us in Harrods. From a cheese perspective she um, judges on the World Cheese Awards and she also visits quite a lot of our cheese suppliers um, where again she will pre-select the wheels um, for instance our Comte, um, they released about 30 wheels earlier this year and she got to secure 4 of them at a 36 month age so um, quite a rare um, uh, ageing for, for cheese uh, and we're lucky enough to be able to sell it in the food halls and
1: you also were telling me about the truffle that they can inject different truffle flavours into yes. cheese so there's lots of personalised products available there
4: is so again in every category Degree, we've tried to really shift I suppose what, what maybe tradition or how you do things and really um, think about how we can um, build on the experience for the customer and truly personalize it as you said Sharon um, so um, truffle is obviously very much in season at the moment um, and truffle cheeses and uh, truffle and cheese go really well together and it's something that we've seen very much grow over the last couple of years um, but what we've done is um, our chefs have um, developed a truffle paste which we then can um, slice a wheel of cheese and insert that um, truffle paste and then allow it to mature. Um, customers can let us know the intensity of the truffle that they wish for. So if they want a mild truffle, then we'll create a mild truffle paste. If they want a very intense truffle, then it'll be a very intense truffle paste. And we do it across an array of different cheeses. Um, So again, really, truly personalising it um, for our customers.
1: And it sounds like you very much are ahead of the food trends, like you know what's coming up. And for example, some of the meats that you have, you were the first to have the Wagyu and the Kobe cuts of beef there.
4: Yes, that's right. I mean, to to some extent, food trends are not overtly important for us, but at the same time, I guess we are always seeking out what's new and what's different. Um, The approach we take on trends, though, is really thinking about what's relevant to our customers at this moment in time. And because we've got a very dynamic and a very global customer base, then it is our, our jobs. Um, to seek out those speciality products. So as customers, ways of eating are changing, then it's our job to make sure that we're fulfilling those needs. Yes, we were the first retailer to um, sell um, Kobe, um, as you said, but we're also approaching food in terms of seasonality, But not seasonality in terms of spring, summer, autumn, winter, but seasonality in terms of what's early season, what's absolute peak season and what's late season. So right throughout our fruit and vegetables, that's the approach that we've taken. So you'll see we're very much about squashes and root vegetables at the moment. Come January, it'll all be about oranges and into the summer then we'll have the biggest array of tomatoes. That's very interesting
1: that you say that, because my next question was going to be about the different individuals involved in in the food offering, so we've talked about Bernadette and then you have a, a team of 150 chefs that are either behind the scenes or in front of the scenes and you're talking about the squash there and pumpkin was something else that you touched on whenever we were in the food hall and you have a pasta section there. with experts making fabulous pasta and they made was it a squash ravioli or a pumpkin Pumpkin, ravioli ravioli, that's
4: right yeah so again i mean right throughout the food halls um that that level of expertise is really important to us and then how we translate that to customers is really important so pumpkin um, ravioli is bang on season and it's the sort of the, the feature within the pasta offering at the moment but that will, you know, quickly change to some, um, you know, fresh cheeses um, come January, February and right through to, you know, the most amazing tomato, um, ragu's, um when tomatoes are in season and so on and so forth. So, yeah, carrying through the seasonality is really important. It's lovely to
1: hear the passion that you have for the food industry and for, you know, I suppose meeting customer needs and people will be saying there's Anne Dunn and she works in Harrods and that's not an English accent you're from <laughs> Cavan. I am indeed, I'm so very proud of it. Tell me about your journey from Cavan to Harrods in London.
4: Sure, um, so yeah I was born in Cavan um, in a little village called Mount Ugent, um, which uh, is probably most well known for um, some great um, salmon and trout from our local um uh, Lake Loch I was uh, born and schooled there, and then headed off to university. Um, but I guess my my true passion has always been food, ever since I was young. So I was born on a farm. I grew up on um, you know freshly um, milked cows every day. I was lucky enough to eat the best beef uh, because my father was a beef farmer, and um, indeed the best pork. But I headed off to university in in Dublin and I did um, a degree in arts there. But knowing that it wasn't quite right for me, I sought out a master's in food business in Cork. And that's when I really knew that I wanted to do something in food and something in business. So this felt like the perfect um, course for me. Then I was very lucky to um, work with a company called um, Freshways uh, Foods, who were owned by Kerry Foods, um, and at the time were uh, building a state-of-the-art um, sandwich and sort of food-to-go um, facility. And I headed up the um, MPD um, there with a very small team, uh, was sort of thrown in the deep end, but got to learn quite a lot uh, very quickly. And then I realised that actually the pace of work was probably quicker in retail than it was in manufacturing and I wanted to see what it felt like to be in retail. So I I jumped from one ship to the other and um, worked in Superquin um, for a number of years looking after the development, um, mainly of fresh categories actually, and got to develop some incredible um, foods in my time there. I also spent a bit of time while I was there in buying and category um, management, so I sort of spread my wings into other departments knowing that innovation was still my true passion but I knew I needed to do that um, to to have a much better understanding of um, all elements um, of retail. And then I uh, got a phone call uh, one day from um, Harrods wondering would I be interested in coming to uh, work as the head of product development and um, at the time Bruce Langlands um, was the director of foods. So I spent some time with him understanding the scope of the role and it was probably after marriage and birth one of the most exciting uh, days for me because I seen the opportunity, I seen what it was like to be in Harrods at that time but also how the whole world of food was changing and how Harrods really wanted to be the pioneer of it. So, um, yeah, so I joined Harrods just over seven years ago and um, have been on a, a sort of revolutionary journey ever since. Um, having redesigned two of the foo- four food halls now, I can say that I've truly um, enjoyed the time and I've done an immense amount in that time, but I guess there's there's still more to do
1: and you are a great advocate for artisan food producers and working with them even if they have a great product but the packaging isn't right that's something that you have worked with a number of small companies
4: on we have and i mean that's i think that's probably one of my fundamental um, values is that the product has to taste truly amazing and if it does then we've got to Give it the right packaging so that the customer knows that before they they um, actually buy it. We've got lots of examples of small and producers that we've worked with over the years, and particularly in the fresh market hall, um, where you know we've we've launched seventeen hundred new products. We've sought out the the best, but also we're very conscious of hand holding them as well. So we um, we've worked with a very small farm who produce all our milk, our cream, and our butter have never been in retail uh, before understood the sort of requirements that you know we had around sort of packaging and design that we needed but also the technical um, standards and we spent a number of months um, working with them but we know at the end of the day we've got the most incredible products uh, at the end of it which was always what we wanted. We've got a very small um, egg farm called Cackle Bean um, Farm where all of our eggs come from. They specialise in sort of rare breed hens So when we tasted the eggs, Um, immediately we knew that they were by far the best eggs that we've ever tasted. Um, You know, all of our chefs were incredibly wowed by how beautiful the the products tasted. And then it was simply about us working with them to get them into beautiful packaging that really represented the brand um,
1: quite well. And in terms then of moving forward, is Harrod's vision for the future, for the food hall, is it continuing to work with existing suppliers, constantly looking for new ones and just always improving the customer experience?
4: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I um we we need to continue to evolve as our customers do our ambition is to be the world's greatest food Emporium so we can't sit still with that that ambition so you know even though we've launched 1700 new lines for instance recently we're still we're, we're already learning from that just four weeks in and um, we know we've got some indicators of what's working we know we haven't got everything right and um, we're we're constantly on the lookout we we travel the world and um, you know to the buying team the team, the innovation team, we, um, we visit trade shows, we um, are, you know, form part of judging panels um, for some of the best awards around the world, the World Cheese Awards, the Great Taste Awards, indeed the Blas Heron Awards. Um, and you know we're we're constantly on the lookout for for new products, but always bearing in mind that you know we've got to think about what the customer um, wants, and the customer is ultimately at the heart of everything we do.
1: Well, I've no doubt there's a number of small producers out there listening that would just love to see their 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 products and hearts but obviously it's a long it's the long haul. It doesn't happen overnight, as you've told me in the past. It's been great to be here to see it all in real life and to see a number of Irish products on the shelves. It makes me. Feel very proud.
4: Oh, thank you, Sharon. Indeed, I am too. And thanks so
1: much for having me today.
4: Thank you.
0: You're listening to the best possible taste with Sharon Noonan, sponsored by the Taste.ie, voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine.
1: Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and...
2: I'm Hannah Noonan.
1: And you're listening to a second Helpings episode with our favourite interviews from 2018. Next up, we're in Galway for Food on the Edge where I met Diana Henry, author of Eat a Peach. You liked the cover of Diana's cookbook, didn't you, Hannah? Yes, because it felt really nice. It felt like a peach. And you know I told her that. Let's have a listen.
0: Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up.
1: Delicious. Mmm. I was looking at how to eat a peach last night and I said to my seven-year-old daughter, do you like this? Feel this? What does it remind you of? And she said, oh, it's like a peach. And I said, isn't that a lovely cover? She said, yes, it is. But I think they could have done it differently. I said, well, do tell, because <laughs> I'm meeting Diana Henry tomorrow and <laughs> I will tell Diana
2: Henry what your seven-year-old So what was the idea? Just to do the peach... In the peach skin. Oh she's gonna she's gonna she's gonna be a designer. And do the rest like an apple skin. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> so very Spare good. me from clever
1: children. That's Hannah Noonan. It? It's a great name for a book and there's a story behind it. Tell us a story about
2: being in Italy for the first time. Um oh my I honestly lost my mind when I went to Italy for the first time. Because you know, growing up at my, in in my time in Northern Ireland you did not go places abroad because, you know, you had to go either via London or from Dublin, and there were four of us and it was too expensive. So we never went anywhere except for Dublin. Um, And actually, I think that was an advantage because then when I did go to places, you know, when I went to France for the first time and then when I went to Italy, I would just be like, oh my God, it's so intensely French, it's so intensely Italian. And I went to Tuscany and Umbria the first time I'd ever been in Italy. And we drove all the way, me and my brother in this clapped-out car, drove all the way down through France and on into Italy. And the last night that we were there, we went because I, I cooked most of the time, we had this little apartment, but the last night we went out to this little simple outdoor restaurant and the people at the table next to us, I didn't even have this meal, it was the people at the t- table next to us, when it came to dessert, they had a bowl of peaches and a bottle of very cold Moscato brought out and they sat there and they have the peach and slice it and dropped it into a wine glass and then they put the Moscato in and then they let it sit and macerate for a while and then they drank the wine and they ate the peaches which now were sort of flavoured of each other and I thought, well apart, this was a height of sophistication for a start but I also thought my god that is such a really good idea. A really good idea because it's very simple but also because you're really tasting both of those things. It's completely uncluttered. You're not having to, you know, have some... And I do like pâtisserie, but it's not a complicated pastry. It is the height of summer. The peaches are perfect, and the white ones are really perfumed. And, I mean, what better could you do? So that really had an impact on me to kind of, like, do things that weren't too complicated. Um, But also to think of dishes that kind of captured the essence of a place because that out of that trip that was the dish I think and it's barely a dish you don't cook it um, that really stayed with me and it really seemed to say you know Italy to me, it's not fussy
1: And the book is very nostalgic because you do have lots of different stories in it and places that you were and even for me, one of the first recipes is the, the leeks, the Breton leeks, with vinaigrettes and I was just like, god yeah, like it's oh, too many years to remember since I did my year out in France and sure I would have been scoffing those, those by things. the bucket, they were delicious but I probably haven't really
2: had them since then and I was saying, I must make those why haven't I done that? I just, um, I think my I grew up with very good food, and my mum is a very good cook, and I started, like, baking when I was about six. But then it was when I started to travel as well that I really, I was amazed by food everywhere, especially France really had a big influence. I mean, it does on people my age. But I went to to do an a exchange, so I stayed with this family for six weeks in the summer, and they had a little um, cottage... I mean, when I say a cottage, it was literally falling down. There was no the loo was down in a field, and when you had to have there was no bath. So when you had to have a wash, everybody had to leave the house and you had to do it in the kitchen. So there was nothing sophisticated about it. But I thought it was completely paradise because they they cared about food every day, right from breakfast to dinner, what you were going to have, and with the girl who was my exchange partner. We were picking herbs and, you know, she taught me how to make vinaigrette and we we're going off to get rabbits and that kind of thing. So it was a stage on from what I had had in Northern Ireland, I suppose. And then every time I travelled, every time I went somewhere, it was it was the food I would really kind of notice. That seemed to be how you got to the heart of somewhere, in a way. Um, and the whole book is it nostalgic I didn't mean it's it ended up being kind of slightly memoirish which I didn't intend at all it was just going to be a book of menus but then when I put the menus together I realised that an awful lot of them were about place they are about places I'd been or places I'd loved or places I'd only kind of fleetingly been to and wanted to go back to because they made me so excited but I think I am a product of my time and place in that I'd never done any travelling so when I started to do it it was like oh my god everything seemed fascinating to me. And it has stayed that way. And I love the way you say in the book about
1: entertaining, you know, not dinner parties, entertaining. I have a friend in Dublin, and she had said to me one time, like, do you have dinner parties? And I said, no, we don't have dinner parties. I said, with people round for their tea. Yes, people round. With people round for their tea, (laughs) not dinner parties. And then they were down for a weekend, and we were having dinner, and she was like, this is a dinner party. (laughs) And I was like, no, it's not. Well, we we didn't didn't have them growing up,
2: so it wasn't a thing. Although my mum let me have one, I was... I think I was about 15 when I had the first dinner party, although nobody called it that and I had friends round from school. And I mean made three courses and had candles and everything. And pineapple ice water? Pineapple water ice, yes, in the pineapple shells. That when I brought it out, it said, why well, are we have mashed potato? No, it's like, oh my god, you complete heathens. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, um, I just liked I just liked I kind of liked occasions. I liked marking food with setting time aside to do it and then having people over.
1: But do you like organizing and the planning side of it the the way that you put the menus together? Oh, over? I love
2: to think about the menus. Oh my God, I would spend like eight hours on that. Should I do this dish? Shall I do the other dish? There's just something about thinking of flavors and how one course dovetails into the next that I really, really love and it's a pleasure purely for me i mean nobody who actually comes round ever particularly i don't think they just was it nice food yeah whatever um but i like that whole thing but they must feel terribly lucky to get an invitation to come and eat oh do you know what Shae i Diana. used i used to do um i don't do it now but i used to do such complicated things before i had children i used to do such complicated dishes such complicated menus that i think i got quite fed up because um they didn't. See, I was in the kitchen, and that's a, ba- that's a bad hostess, that's a bad way to entertain, so I, I cook less complicated things now, but I'm quite a selfish cook, I cook because I like to cook, you know, I don't actually think, oh I'd love to see so and so and so and so, okay, issue the invitations, then think what will I make them, I generally think, oh I'd really like to cook this dish, now what would go with that, put it all together, and then I think, now who would like to eat that? So I do it the wrong, well, the wrong way, the opposite way
1: around to most people. And you grew up not far from Portrush, where there would have been a catering college, but you didn't. Yes. Think that you ended up doing English I do literature to do, at literature. Oxford.
2: Um, at that time, nobody, it wasn't nobody went on to do to be a chef or anything if you also were good at your schoolwork. And I did love reading as my other like huge passion. I love it and writing. Um, so that was the obvious thing to do. But when I when I was at Oxford, um, Raymond Blanc was just coming on the scene. I mean, the first wonderful meal I had was at the end of my first year in Oxford. And I went to his place called Le Petit Blanc in summertime. That was part of um, Oxford, just on the outskirts. And then I when he, when he moved to the at Cat Saison, I would go... with the same boyfriend who I went to Italy to eventually, uh, just to read the menu on the wall in the glass-lit case outside the memoir. Cussis. I mean, we couldn't afford to to go there. Although when I made my very, the very first paycheck I got um, was for writing a piece about wine. And it was, it was, it was a hundred and ten quid. And that's what I used it for. I went to the memoir. It's blue it all. And it was an incredible night. It was really wonderful. So,
1: you know, you did English literature at mm-hmm. Oxford and then you did the journalism. I did journalism
2: at City University and then I joined the BBC.
1: And at that, were you always thinking in your mind, I want
2: to get into a food type, I want to find Absolute, food? Absolutely not, no. I really just always thought I would work in television. And that was what. And I felt that when I, when I started the BBC, I really had a sense of, I've come home. This is my place. This is the place I felt most at home, including a home my whole life this place just really suits me um,
1: and what was it about it that suited you
2: that made you feel so comfortable I just seem to have like minded people around me people who wanted to make things I really like and people who were you know thinking and chatting there's a thing about making television which is quite similar to cooking in a way it's both practical and cerebral so it takes thinking and it takes doing and that combination really worked for me I mean I wouldn't have wanted to go on and do academic work because in your head all day no that's not for me I wanted to make things as well and that's what you do when you're doing television it is a perfect combination of that and it was good fun it was just really good fun Um, and then I wouldn't have um, left except that I, when I was 30 I thought to myself because I loved food so much and it was my hobby I would spend weekends exhausting myself like making feel stock and reducing it all down and all the rest of it and Not such dedication isn't it? I just it was just it was my hobby it was my hobby and I used to spend hours on this stuff and um, But then I went to Leith School of Food and Wine. I decided, you know, it's hilarious when I look at it now. I was 29 and I thought, oh my God, I'm so old. And I really love cooking and I'm only going to pass this way once. So I really ought to go and do this course. So they gave me unpaid leave and I was allowed to go to Leith for a term. And at the end of the second day, I resigned my job at the BBC. and And I went on and I did the year at Leith's. And that meant then after that that I went had to go back um, as a freelancer to the independent sector. I didn't go back to the BBC immediately. I did some some stuff elsewhere. I did breakfast television, um, and I knew by the end of that year at least I couldn't be a chef. I couldn't be a chef, and also I didn't really want to be. It's very difficult when you train, when you're busy training to do something, and everyone else wants to do it. You get you get carried along. You think this is what I want to do too. Um, I I could never have hacked it at all. I couldn't have taken the hours, the physicalness, the stress of it, the heat of it. But as well as that, they they are. It's about getting dishes out fast, the same dishes to the same standard every day. That's not what really interested me about food. And also, I was more interested in food from people's homes than I was in Chefy stuff. So, you know, I had already discovered a Claudia Roden and Jane Rickson and they talked about food within a context and that's what really interested me. Food from all over the world and what were the stories behind it and how did you cook it and how did, come this, how did this dish come about and what are the variations on it. And I have no idea why that interests me, but that just always has. You, could tell, you start telling me any stuff that's kind of obscure about food and I will listen. Um, but it wasn't until I then had my first child and people always said why aren't you writing about food why aren't you writing about food you're so obsessed with it and it was just like I didn't didn't think it was very important I still don't think it's hugely important you know I enjoy it but I'm not saving the world and making television partly was about I suppose making things that you know were for the greater good for kind of like greater understanding of this that and the other Um, but when Ted was born I went to Channel 4 when he was eight months old to do a series which was um, a sort of social history of gardening in Great Britain. And I thought, well, you know, that's not a depressing subject, that'll be fine, and it won't be, the hours won't be too terrible. In six weeks, I was never home before nine o'clock, and I was taking him with me, this eight-month-old, and feeding him and everything when I was away at the weekend doing recce's in these gardens. And they were lovely gardens, but it just, it wasn't going to work. Um, I mean, I had had someone to take care of Ted, so on a practical level, it could have worked, but I would have to have cared a lot less. And this thing of leaving him with a nanny every day, it just did my head in. And I just thought, this is not why I had this child, and I missed him dreadfully. Actually, I don't think it did Ted any harm, but after six weeks, I just went in one, it was the end of my TV career, I went in one Monday morning, I said, I'm not doing this anymore, because I am so unhappy. I mean, really, I was crying and eating Jaffa cakes. That was how bad it was. So that was it. And um, I, I wrote some things on spec, sent them off. The good thing about having a journalism training is that I could look at magazines, I could see what they did. Mm. You know, you know the stuff, you kind of say, this is, this is the sort of things they write, so there's no point in sending stuff that's different than that.
1: And you probably had
2: a pile of those magazines at home. Oh yeah, and I kind of you know, I just knew journalistically the way to go about it, so I got commissioned quite quickly, it'd be a lot harder now probably, because not everybody wants to be a food writer, I don't know why um, but I got commissioned and I also um, ghost wrote a chef's book, I was in to do, asked to do that, and then I had just a fortuitous meeting with a publisher who asked to see me and I assumed that it was about ghostwriting and at the end of the meeting, I just said, this is a, I've got an idea for a book, this book, Crazy Water Pickle Lemons, which had been in my head for a long time, and they just took it, they took it there and then on the spot. And again, because I'd been involved with broadcasting, I went back from that meeting, and I did a mood board, and I wrote up a treatment like I would do for television, and then they took it to the sales team. And because you've done a mood board, it practically exists because you've got the visuals they were sorted. able to visualise yes it, yeah. and it was in my head already so you know they're not going to have to pay me very much because nobody knows who the hell I am and I suppose they thought they might as well take a punt and th- and they did and of course you're very well known now and I asked a couple of people I said
1: okay what, what is it about Diana Henry's recipes and they all said to me her recipes work yeah that a lot of recipe books no, they you know, don't work. And then of course you blame yourself for why you did something wrong. there. No, I take
2: it. Very, I take very seriously what it is that I'm doing in the same way as I did when I was in television. People will buy ingredients to cook your stuff, and if it doesn't work, they'll have wasted money, and they will feel bad about themselves. And I don't want either of those two things to happen. Plus, I don't do very complicated chefy food. I mean, that's not the way I cook really. So they should all be doable. But I get very upset if I hear that things haven't worked.
1: But you test and test and test. You test up to eight times if necessary. Oh, do you know what? I
2: made those Portuguese pastéis de nata. Do you know how many times? Do you know how long that took me? Go on. I did those 22 times over two weeks because the Telegraph wanted them for an Easter menu, and I tried all sorts of recipes from, you know, from Portuguese books. My mother and father had a house in Portugal, so I got them to ask Portuguese friends to translate it into English, and I tried their stuff. Nothing worked. And I eventually I eventually work, worked it out what... I mean, I think they're actually nicer than most fast nata I've ever had, but I was determined to get that right. Yeah, and ate... Sometimes it's the simplest things as well. Like, I did this... um somebody told me about a thing they'd had in Greece that was with, like a crustless pie in a way, with eggs, yoghurt a little bit of polenta, some flour feta, all the rest of it and I thought, god that sounds really good but I kept making it and it would be too firm, so I kept having to adjust the amount of polenta in it and the temperature and then eventually hit on a thing where the temperature was at one particular um, temperature to roast the courgettes in and then you turn it down and you you do the the custard, the egg and yoghurt based custard and I nearly gave up on that because I thought this should work, but I, every single time I get the quantities are' slightly out it's not it's maybe it's just a boring dish, maybe this is not a great dish and then the eighth time I did it, it was like, oh my God, this is kind of like It's not like a quiche because you've got the yoghurt in it as well and you've got the polenta, but it was still, it was light still. It was kind of light but substantial, and I thought, oh, this is good. But I got fed up with it. I mean, really, the eighth time, I think I wasn't going to do it again. If I hadn't worked that time, it was just like, well, I'm giving up on this thing.
1: And the attention to detail in the book that it says, you know, you make everything in a fan oven, but check the manufacturer's instructions if your oven isn't a fan one and eggs, it's all medium eggs, unless otherwise stated. Yes,
2: it... Well because you know, you can write recipes as well as you can, but you can't you know, though then there are variables that you can't control. But I think a lot of people
1: wouldn't even be bothered putting that into the book. Your attention to detail and your desire for the reader to make oh, no. it and it for d- to turn do, on. do you know what happens
2: at the weekend at the weekend um you know i get because it's you know saturdays and sundays and people make special meals i get all of these pictures through on instagram of people who've cooked dishes or they made it for mother's day or they've had a whole part and they've done recipes from this book and recipes from that book and it practically makes me cry because yes great that is what I'm supposed to have done. I mean, I think apart from inspiring people in the in the books that are a bit more literary, I think I'm supposed to empower people. I think that's my job. I have to help them to be cooks. And you do a great job
1: at it. So I have one final question for you we were talking about entertaining there and having people around for your tea. Yes. And I'm going to reverse it because I know you like to decide what the menu is, but, but I'm going to give you the guest list, okay? Oh, my God. It's a Northern Irish oh. guest list, okay? Obviously, I am there. Okay. We have Claire Smith, and, of course, we need to keep the gender balance. I think I'd be a bit scared so, for her. Liam Neeson. Oh, my God.
2: What are you going to make for us?
1: And I was I was not happy to hear the coriander was your favourite herb. So well, it's it's the Brit <laughs> it's
2: the favourite herb in Britain. Do you okay. not like it?
1: Not you know, I used to really not like. It. I'll tell you where I actually was one night years ago in the remore in Portrush. Okay. And I had a chicken dish, and it was like, oh my god, this tastes like washing up. Liquid.
2: Do you know what? But you've probably do you know there is a thing. Basically, you can't make yourself like coriander if you don't. You get that soapy taste. Yeah. People who like it don't.
1: So this was years ago. People taste it differently.
2: And I was at work then the following week, and my boss
1: said, "Oh, how'd you get on the more I said, "Oh my God, I had this chicken dish. It was horrible." Lord, Three weeks later, she came in and said, "I had that soapy dish as well." But now, I don't get it now. Well, maybe
2: maybe you maybe your tasting has changed or something.
1: However, I was at something recently and tasted and said, "Oh, this is full of coriander," but it wasn't that soapy taste. Okay. So maybe my taste buds have changed, you know. Okay, it
2: could be. Yeah, well, it was a long time ago. Okay, so I have the three. Of, I have the three of you there. Um, I think. Ooh, let me think about the starter in a minute. I think I might do lamb shanks in stout. Lovely. I think I might do that. Okay. What time of year is it? Shall we say it's? Uh, well, we'd say it's this time of the year. Okay. Well let's we have to be a little bit colder than this for that I think. Oh I think Liam would like that. you think he would I think he, I don't know whether I don't know whether I don't know whether Claire would or not. But I think that would be that would be good. And do you know what I had the other night? I would do this because this is really interesting to me. I was at Kai restaurant in Galway and they bring the potatoes out they have the champ on the menu okay. And it's not like my mother's champ. They have, I don't know what variety of potato they use, but it's absolutely delicious. She, the chef there, and she's Kiwi, she's not Irish, she doesn't do that thing of infusing the milk with the the scallions in it. She puts them straight in, she uses loads of butter. And she doesn't peel her potatoes. Really? Yes. So you get these, I mean, they're delicious mashed potatoes with this fantastic butter. And all she does is she just snips the scallions into it. So I think I might have to, I mean, he'd probably say, this isn't the right way. But I think I would have to have um, Liam taste this weed champ. And then I would have roasted carrots, I think. This is very, this is very meaty and big, isn't it? I think it's because of him. It is. I think he's leading this, he and um, I think for pudding, I might have an apple tart. I think he'd love the apple tart. We're all apple about tarts. him. I don't care. So, about it is, but, no, Claire, Claire Smith can just, she can take up the rear, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I'd have an apple tart. And it's not something I. Funny enough, my mother made it a lot, and I loved the one we had at home with the crust on top. When I make make it these days I generally make um, a French one because that was one of the first things I learned to make and it looks very impressive but I think we just have a normal Irish apple tart and at the beginning to start with we might have mussels or we might just have if I could get hold of them um, Dublin Bay prawns cooked in butter and garlic and parsley. Maybe, maybe some oysters as well Oh yeah you could have those before <laughs> right at the very beginning I just interviewed Richard Corrigan actually for the Irish Times, I was with him last week, oh he had good oysters in there, very good oysters, what do we have after that, turbot, really gorgeous turbot with sweet corn from his place, um, Virginia Park Lodge in County Cavern with that, and béarnaise. we didn't have a pudding, but um, he was a tonic to be with actually because obviously it's kind of refined he's learned French techniques and stuff like that, but he completely loves Irish ingredients. He loves it. So I think I would I would be concentrating on flavour and what is the best what is the best stuff that we could get. And there'd have to be wheat and bread in there somewhere. Yeah. With the prawns probably.
1: Well, Liam, if you're listening, it's an open invitation, but I have to be... be (laughs) He'll be
2: very full at the end of it, don't you think, Sharon? I think it might be a bit much for him. Oh, I'd say he's
1: hardcore. His mother was a dinner lady at our school. Was she really? he'd be well able for it. He was brought up in in good stuff like that. Diana, it's been lovely to talk to you. It's been great. Thanks so much for your time. You're very welcome. Enjoy the rest of Food in the Age. I will.
0: You're listening to the best possible taste with Sharon Noonan sponsored by the taste.ie voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine.
1: Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And I'm Hannah Noonan. And tonight you're listening to a second Helpings episode with three of my favourite interviews from 2018. The final one is on top of a Ferris wheel with Karen and Natalie from Bean and Goose. They do great sharing bars of chocolate, don't they, Hannah? Yeah, you break them with a hammer. You absolutely do. Let's have a listen.
2: Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up.
1: Delicious. Mmm. Girls, Cheers. Cheers. I don't think there's a clink now because they're plastic no. glasses.
3: <laughs>
1: Very unusual to be on a ferris wheel doing an interview, but I'm delighted to be here with you both, Natalie and Karen,
3: sisters, Bean and Goose, it's a, a chocolate company, a fabulous no, chocolate done. company, and you've just won a big award. Yes, we um, we won a great taste award. Well, actually we actually won two um, for, for two of our products, we won one for a winter spark, which is our Christmas sharing slab, and for one of our 80 gram bars of chocolate, our milk bar with Irish smoked sea salt and coconut, so we're absolutely delighted. Yeah, and actually the, the milk bar that we won the award
5: for was the first bar we ever created <laughs> together. And
3: when yeah. was that now, and what was the
1: inspiration oh. to start a chocolate company? Okay,
5: that's, that's a big question, <laughs> and um, I suppose we started being and four years ago, Karen, yes, I did. if that'd be right? Yeah. But we started in a very small way. We started just being and Karen hand-making chocolate and marble slabs in, in our kitchen, although we still work from the kitchen today, but it really was just the two of us. Um, and we used to go up to uh, the Dublin food markets, such as Alistair Goodness and Temple Bar, and we used to use that um, that for, you know, just feedback, customer feedback, to see what they thought of the flavours that, that, that we were creating, and the packaging, and the branding, and, and all that other lovely information. Um, so the inspiration, the business came from a number of a number of things came together first we wanted to work together we we're both at the point in our lives we really wanted to have our own business and, and, and to do something together we thought would be great because we've got, we've got skills that we thought would complement um, the other person and then food because we love food uh, we, we were brought up in a household of foodies our grandmother was a big foodie our mother was a great cook so food has always been a big part of our family and our story and uh, I suppose chocolate then, the actual, you know, we, we narrowed it down to chocolate because we thought there was a real gap in the market for a chocolate brand that spoke to today's new consumer. Um, and all those things came together and we had the, the ping moment, we thought we had a fantastic idea. We did. So we went <laughs> off and we gave it a go and we're still there, giving it a go.
1: It is a very yeah. luxury brand of chocolate. Yeah,
5: it is, it's a very premium chocolate and it's very indulgent, I think, all the products that we make are indulgent, and that's what we like about that. We wanted them to be that. We didn't want them to be anything else other than just beautiful chocolate. No compromise. Um, so What we do is we source beautiful single origin chocolate from all over the world, dark and milk chocolates, and then we pair them with Irish flavors and ingredients to create a bean and goose product. So essentially, that's what we do. We create our chocolate bars, our sharing slabs of chocolate, um, Irish whiskey truffles, and then all our lovely
3: seasonal products too.
1: And you make it all at home in your farmhouse.
3: We have our a, a certified kitchen at home, and that's where we started. So we do all of our bespoke um, products there. We do all of our seasonal products, and but at the moment we're actually um, using um, a factory that's close to us, going in maybe once every three months with our team and using and um, with, with our recipes and using their 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 machinery. machinery. Yeah, big batch. Yeah,
1: and you're both from Wexford and, and right. here we are at the moment oh, yeah. at the top of the Ferris wheel in yeah. Enniscorthy and it is a fabulous county. The views and everything from, from yeah. up here are magnificent. Yeah, I've never
5: seen um, the town from up here no. I have to say never, <laughs> never, never <laughs> <and> it's lovely
1: <laughs> but of course the chocolate isn't just available in Wexford it is widely available all over Ireland and beyond. It
5: is very much. A, we're, we're available in all beautiful um, independent food stores um, gift stores actually, um, lovely Irish gift stores, we're very often there and we're available online as well, we've got a, a lovely online store that we sell directly to our customers from and that's where we always have our full range of products
1: so. and let's talk about the sizes of the bars because they come in various what different you sizes yeah. and we have one very special size bar.
3: Yeah well, our, our smallest bar is um, our bar yoga, and that is um, our treat size indulgent um, bar of chocolate um, and that sells really well in cafe spaces so if you just um, you know, want to pick something up to treat yourself. And from there we go up through our main bar range and right up to our kilo and a half um, sharing slabs um, that we, we create for, um, for customers. And that is um, a kilo and a half of single origin chocolate and we top it with fruits and nuts and spices that we create in our own kitchen.
1: Yeah, I, and, and the sharing bar is just magnificent yeah. it really is like, do people really share it <laughs>
3: <laughs> most do some
1: do not and that's okay too <laughs> what's the most popular flavor
5: of sharing slab would or, or of sharing slab would be actually our winter's bark and again actually it was our original sharing slab that we created we created just for christmas time so it really captures all those Christmas flavours, got cranberries, hazelnut, of that almond, all roasted in a winter spice, and it's all um, on a bed of beautiful chocolate from Madagascar. So um, I, that, that's hugely popular and we only create that between probably in the shops from November till Christmas Eve, but you won't find any in January, February, March because we just don't create it, we don't send it out. Um, we're a big believer in seasonality. And then from our bar range, Probably, probably our dark chocolate bar with hazelnuts to be raised Wexford honey and chilli and spices. That's always been a really popular one.
1: It's nice to have the taste of Wexford in it whenever you're from Wexford. <laughs> That's
5: right. That's why we always link back to Ireland Irish flavours. And if we can link back to a Wexford ingredient or a Wexford flavour, we're, we're delighted then. That really makes the product special.
1: Let's talk a bit about the branding because your packaging and your colours and everything, again, it, it does all scream luxury.
5: Yeah, thank you. Um, we, we love it. We're really proud of it, actually. I suppose it goes back to what, why we started the business. We wanted to connect with today's new, new consumer. Um, and we had, a, we had an idea of what they were looking for and what they wanted in their chocolate brand. Um, so we had to think carefully about flavour profile and branding to do that because your chocolate bars have to, have to get off the shelf and into their shopping basket. So we went to a fantastic, really young company in Dublin to help us with that, they were called Design Goat. Um, and Design Goat were great because they weren't food branders in the same way we weren't food producers. So they, I knew, well we knew they were going to come at it with a different, a different hat on. They were going to look at it from a, a different angle than a normal food brander would. Um, but we also noticed that they were creative products, interiors and spaces for our consumer. So we thought if you can, if you can build a restaurant for our consumer you can package a chocolate bar for them and, and they did but the inspiration for the branding comes directly from Wexford so the colors in all of our packaging comes from the landscape that we look we look outside our kitchen window and we see those grays and greens and pinks and sludgy beautiful colors of the Irish landscape and that's exactly where it comes from so design go built upon that.
1: Well just to finish off now we're on the Ferris wheel, first time it's ever been in Enniscorthe, everybody's very pleased to see it here for the first time and we're enjoying a gin from Wexford and we've talked about lots of the chocolate there that is inspired by Wexford. So would I be correct in saying that down the line we may
3: see a Jackford gin-inspired chocolate or flavoured chocolate? Yeah, absolutely. One of our favourite things is getting in the kitchen and using as much local produce as possible. Um, so. Um, even at the moment, we soak lots of our fruits um, in, in gins that that from from around Ireland. So we would definitely look forward to using Jackford um, gin to, um, to create a bar with. Um, we have a monthly subscription um, club um, that we um, that's available online, and each month we create two limited edition bars and one um, send out one from our core range. So every month we get to flavour flavours and create two new bars. So it definitely will be appearing on one of those we're always looking for ingredients to create balance from <laughs> fantastic well
1: listen I think we should finish off now we're at the very top for yeah, about the third yeah. or fourth time and let's enjoy the view and enjoy the, the Jack for Gin and thanks so much for talking thank to me today. today thank, thank you Sharon
3: sure. cheers gin chin, chin.
0: salut schlater
1: we hope you've enjoyed the second helpings of Best Possible Taste, featuring some of our favourite 2018 interviews. Thanks to everyone who spoke to me last year and to you for listening. And tonight's co-presenter, thank you, Hannah Noonan.
2: Thank you. Great to be here. Until next time, Bon Appetit.
0: Thanks for listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by the Taste.ie voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. To get in touch with the best possible taste, email Sharon at SharonNoonan.com or tweet Sharon at QueenOfOrg. As in, Queen of Organisation. Bon Appetit.